You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Yeah, so it took about a year to get to that trust, uh, but with that came that conversation that was, was really uh, conducted with love, and love is always the key to vulnerability, isn't it? And uh, people are traveling up from Portland to see what's going on. Musicians are coming up there to be part of the whole musical thing in the Strand, and, and of course I like the movies they show, so uh, it's great. Yeah, so the Rockland's changed a lot. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo, and you are listening to Love Main Radio, show number 293, Designing Anew airing for the first time on Sunday, April 30th, 2017. Maine is home to many who enjoy transforming things in unexpected ways. Today, we speak with Dr. George Smith, an education innovator who founded the Institute for Doctoral Studies in the Visual Arts, headquartered in Portland, Maine, in 2006. We also discuss the recently opened Rockland Boutique Hotel, 250 Maine, with its co-creator, Cabot Lyman, owner of Lyman Morse Boat Building, and with manager, Ruth Woodbury-Starr. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Love Main Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where everybody is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. It is my pleasure to have with me today George Smith, who founded the Institute for Doctoral Studies in the Visual Arts in 2006. Headquartered in Portland, Maine, the Institute is the first and only school in the world to offer a PhD in philosophy, especially designed for visual artists, curators, and creative scholars. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. So I'm really kind of fascinated by the fact that you are so dedicated to uh, the visual arts that you actually are putting out there something that nobody else is doing. Why would you do that? Well, in Maine, you'll do anything for a job, as we all know. That, that can be said <laughs> is true, yes. Uh, but aside from that, Lisa, I um, started an MFA program at the Maine College of Art that was... Uh, unusual if not unique in the country insofar as it was kind of a 50-50 between theory and practice or philosophy and, and, and studio study. And the students really rocketed out of that experience into zones that they hadn't really anticipated and people got very excited about it. And they were writing for me dissertations that I said, you know, you really ought to go turn this into a PhD because it's absolutely phenomenal. And they'd come back and say, there's no place in America, in fact, there's no place in the world where an artist can go get a PhD in philosophy without having to start all over again. So when I got fired from the main College of Art, I said to myself, this would be a perfect time to try out that idea. And I did. Yeah. 
Well, okay, talk to me about that firing thing, because I think anybody who's been fired, and um, I lost, I've lost a job before, um, it's kind of painful, and there's some amount of time where you spend thinking to yourself, uh, how do I go back and remake something that existed, rather than how do I go forward and make something that hasn't existed yet? Yeah, yeah, it was a great experience for me. It was very painful, and yet, like all painful experiences, it may have been one of the best in my life. Certainly it forced on me a lot of reflection. Uh, it was just one of those things. It was a fit situation. We had a new president that wanted to do something with the MFA program that I didn't uh, see eye to eye on, and it was her prerogative to find others to lead that charge. And that I could come to understand. Uh, but it did force me into a, into a necessity that I had never anticipated, and that is what will I make of my life? I was 55 years old, I was a white guy, getting a, another job in academia was about nil. Uh, so what did I really want to do? And I knew that I, I couldn't give up on my life as a scholar, and as a, an academic, and as someone that was um, deeply invested in visual culture, and visual art. So I decided that the thing to do is, would be to try to get this, this school off the ground. And uh, one of the things that I, I uh, committed myself to was coming up with a di- an idea that would um, reflect what I would do if I were going to do a PhD again, what I would want as a student, what I'd want to experience, what I'd want to get out of it. And what I came up with, I absolutely um, vowed that I would not change. If someone said, we'll let you go forward, but you have to change this, or you have to get rid of that, or you have to do this instead of that, I wouldn't go forward. And you know, luck would have it. We went all the way with no changes. Well, tell me about that. I mean, explore a little bit your own, your own background, your own PhD, your own um, kind of progression academically, and then how you came to this new place. Yeah, yeah. Well, life is, uh, we learn more from life than we certainly do from academic study, and that was my experience in graduate school. I went to Brown, and I studied literature there, and uh, as you probably know, RISD, one of the nation's great art schools, is next to Brown, but it's down, it's down the hill. And everybody at Brown teaches you to look down at artists because the Brown people are intellectuals and the artists, uh, the artists work with their hands. And that was never said, and I never knew that I recognized that, until I wound up at the main College of Art and I said to myself, oh, these people aren't going to like me, and they're not going to be able to do what I teach because they're not trained in intellectual uh, uh, rigor. They're trained in something completely different. And what I discovered was that that wasn't true at all. In fact, they got theory much faster than the students at Brown that I was teaching. They were much more interested in it. They were, their relationship to it was authentic and not, well, can I bring this phrase from Althusser to a cocktail party and impress somebody? It was really dedicated interest. And what came out of their experience was tremendously impressive. It was changing the way they saw the world because they were seers. And to me, two things came out of that. One, I did not recognize that I myself was prejudiced. I only discovered that when I discovered it in my attitude in my surprise, oh, these people are so smart, I didn't think they would be. And then secondly, I got from them the demonstration of what it means to change. And that maybe freed me to the experience that I had when I was fired. Okay, Uh, 
now it's time to change. Okay, so you are in literature, and now you're doing visual arts. So, where was the? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where's the turnoff you, there? You asked very uh, pointed, insightful questions, Lisa. You're a great listener. Um, well, when I was at Brown, because I uh, was interested in art before I got there, I actually wrote a dissertation on the relationship between art and literature. And the dissertation committee back in those days, people were very conservative, as you probably know, especially at the Ivy League schools. And the, the dissertation, dissertation committee rejected my dissertation proposal on the grounds that it was an interdisciplinary dissertation. One had never been done at Brown. And the people in the English department worried that with that, I would never get a job and that would reflect badly on the department. Well, it turns out they were right. <laughs> I, went, I, I pushed through and got the dissertation uh, approved and got it done, but no English department would hire me. They said, well, you know, you know half about English and half about art. We need somebody that knows all about English because that's what we teach you. That was the general message. Nowadays, of course, you can't get a job unless you do interdisciplinary studies. Um, but anyhow, I was really tough, uh, hard up for a job. and. Uh, I wound up teaching a little art history uh, course at Westbrook College, and then wound up teaching a theory course at the Maine College of Art. It was the first theory course they'd ever uh, offered, and it just so happened that the following year their dean left for another job uh, uh, at the uh, Maryland Institute, and they were desperate for an interim dean. They begged me to do it. I needed more income. So I took it, and the next thing I knew, I was stuck in that job for about well, 12 years. Yeah. An interim dean for 12 years? Well, I became the, the permanent dean after the first year. Yeah, they did a search, and then they made the uh, grave mistake of selecting me as the final candidate. Yeah. It sounds like you're very committed to the things that you believe in. You didn't back down when the people at Brown said, no, we don't want you doing this this way. And you didn't back down when the people at Mecca said, well, we need you to fit better. So talk to me a little bit about that. It would be easy enough, because many of us do make compromises in our job lives, for example, to just say, okay, fine, I'll be who you want me to be. But it sounds like that's not the direction you took. That's a great question, too. I grew up in a family of eight kids with a single mother. And um, we were all raised to uh, stick by our convictions. And I think most of us have, if not all of us. And where were you in the lineup? Second oldest. So I'm imagining having a single mother, you probably had a lot of responsibility as I well. I did. She and I worked in a restaurant together. Uh, we, I mowed lawns. I took care of the young kids. I had a lot going on. <coughs> Plus, I played sports. and. Uh, I had every excuse to do poorly at school. <laughs> and somehow you made it into Brown. Well, that was, uh, you know, the, the luck of uh, uh, accident, I suppose. Yeah. Mm, I'm guessing it's probably not as much luck as hard work. Just, just, just reading between the lines. But did it feel once you got to this place where you had this great education in front of you, did it, it almost feel not as hard because what you had been doing as the second oldest in a family of nine with a single mother was so challenging to begin with? Well, that's a great question, too. Um, you know, when you come from a family of that size with those uh, economic dynamics, by the way, we 
we grew up in a middle-class uh, neighborhood and we were poor kids because of that consequence. So I knew a lot about difference and I knew a lot about uh, struggle. Uh, but when you grow up in a family that size uh, with, with one breadwinner and a couple of kids trying to bring in some extra bucks, uh, there's a lot of chaos. And doing well at school really is not a promising uh, prospect. So I wasn't a great student. In fact, I'd love to skip school. Uh, but I, I knew that I had um, a fascination with literature, and I knew that I had a fascination with visual culture and visual art. My mother was a painter, and my father, who was a good guy, uh, was very much interested in literature. So I, even though we were poor, we were raised to take a deep, authentic, substantial interest in the world, especially through literature and visual art and culture. So uh, when I got to Brown, I actually uh, was deeply intimidated because everybody that was there with me had gone to Choate and had gone to Exeter and then had gone to Yale and Harvard. And I had more or less bumbled my way through a state school education. So I really had no idea what I was doing there. And I spent the first year trying to prove to my professors that I knew an awful lot, and that's why I was there. And finally, at the, at the end of the first year, one of them took me aside and said, how, how long have you been in graduate uh, education? I said, oh, a year. He said, how long do you think I've been in graduate? I said, oh, I don't know, 25, 30 years? He said, yeah, and the other people on the committee that admitted you had about the same amount of experience. So that's almost a century of experience against your one year. Why don't you stop trying to tell me what you know and start learning what I have to give you and we'll get along really well. He turned out to be my dissertation director and my mentor. Yeah. Yeah. That's a certain amount of stark honesty in that comment to you. Yeah, uh, he said it in a beautiful way. I'm not conveying to you the sentiment that it came with because it was really done in a loving way. Yeah. Do you think that when one is that age, that that is often the approach that I, I'm just, I think about my own children and both of my older ones who are now in their early 20s went through a stage where they knew a lot more than me and needed to kind of work it out. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I, that they're wrong. They yeah. probably do know a lot more than me. Yeah. But do you think that's a developmental stage? Well, in my case, it wasn't. And although, of course, I was certainly uh, an example of retarded development, but I was in my 30s by that time. Uh, so it really was a matter of feeling less than and, and being afraid to show what I didn't know. So I wasn't really prepared to learn. And it was that first year that actually, actually taught me the lesson that I did not know. Yeah. But it takes a lot of uh, vulnerability to be able to admit that because you have to trust that the people around you are going to accept you for whatever level of knowledge that you have yeah. and be willing to work with you. Yeah, so it took about a year to get to that trust. Uh, but with that came that conversation that was, was really uh, conducted with love. And love is always the key to vulnerability, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, yeah. What is the philosophy of visual arts? What, when you talk about theory, Give me some information. I mean, I am, I am someone who has been trained in science. I have some background in literature, and all I know about art is what I have picked up through working with Art Collector Maine and the artists and the people I've interviewed. So I, I don't, I'm, I don't even know where to start on this idea. Yeah, 
I don't think very many uh, philosophers know where to start on that idea either, quite frankly. I think we're all pretty much confused about that and struggle in the dark to figure it out. Uh, but what I would say there is certainly there has been a history of ideas uh, that has accumulated over centuries and thousands of years uh, in the struggle to understand the human spirit in relation to the world. Traditionally, artists uh, have been relocated to a side role in that human aspiration as visually representing uh, how those ideas might be translated into images that could then be symbolically interpreted by human beings in such a way that it could be a benefit to their lives. Uh, my feeling has always been that artists are themselves by definition philosophers and that because we deny them that kind of training, uh, A, it limits the kind of work that they were thinking that they can represent and B, it also denies us of the advantages that come from that kind of thinking, because we don't pay attention to them as thinkers, we only pay attention to them as makers, going all the way back to the experience that I had at Brown. So for me, uh, it's not so much what is philosophy. The real question is, what can philosophy become? And my feeling is that philosophers today are mostly uh, trained in logic, which is a uh, uh, really the elemental uh, foundation of science. Uh, and what we need to do is to re-infuse re that kind of thinking with creative dynamic thinking that is intrinsic to the, to the creative imagination of the artist philosopher. So what we, uh, um, shall we say, push at IDSVA is what we call new, new philosophy. And new philosophy is the kind of philosophy that is made by the artist philosopher that may be a person who's trained in philosophy that also thinks as the artist, or it may be the artist who's been trained in, in philosophy and thinks in that way too. So IDSVA is the only school in the world that trains people to think as artist philosophers, and we think that that's so important uh, because of where we are in the world today. We are confused. We are absolutely lost. And our politicians don't know the way. Our economists don't know the way, our sociologists and academics don't know the way, and in my view, philosophers have lost the way. Uh, the hope is that with a new way of seeing, uh, we can find a way. And to that end, we bring philosophers from around the world to join in with our, the artists that come to IGSVA to think about how do you think and to practice new, new ways of thinking. It seems as though there would be an applicability to lots of different areas. I mean, we're so confused right now about issues of diversi diversity and gender. And we're trying to see these issues through the same lens that we've always seen them through. But what you're describing is, okay, let's change our thinking, which would then enable us to change our lens, which might actually move us a little bit further than we're heading now. Uh, I, I wish I could say it so well. Um, but that's not to say that we're not interested in questions of gender and race and all of the other issues that immediately dog our, our lives today because we are and we, we work on those questions. But again, we try to work on them from, a, from the kind of point of view that you're describing so eloquently and I struggle so hard to say <laughs> as clearly. As a student with the IDSVA, what types of 
things would one learn? I mean, what, what are the tools that you use? Do you use literature? Do you use art? Do you use both? Is it, I mean, how, how does the learning take place? Yeah, that's a, 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 again a good question. Uh, all of those things and then more. Uh, for one thing, our students uh, travel around the world. Uh, they go to the places in the world where historically art and ideas have come together in such an intersection that it's changed the future of, of, of civilization and, and history. Uh, and they travel in such a way that they actually retrace uh, the evolution of the relationship between art and ideas. So they start in Rome and study classical uh, philosophy and, and obviously architecture, uh, uh, culture, visual representation, and certainly um, uh, aspects of aesthetics. Uh, from there they spend about two weeks in a, in a feudal castle in Tuscany. So they go from the classical to the to the medieval and feudal and while they're in this castle they uh, study contemporary philosophy and we fly in some of the great philosophers from around the world the world to work with them while they're there and meanwhile they're also looking at the relationship between classical and feudal culture because now they're on a, a feudal agrarian estate it's about a 1100 acre farm it's a beautiful place and while they're there, they study in, 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 in uh, Siena, which is a medieval banking city, and Florence, which is Renaissance, of course. And then from there, they go to either Venice or Paris. Venice as a Baroque city, but also the Venice Biennale, which is the most contemporary moment in, in uh, world art. And while they're there, they work with the curators and artists that are representing their nations at Venice. Or they go to Paris, where they study uh, modernism, Paris, the City of Lights, uh, French Impressionism, Post-Impressionism, and so forth and so on, but also French Post-Structuralism, Deleuze and Guattari and Sartre and all that sort of thing. Second year they go to start in Berlin and they study uh, the neoclassical, uh, Kant, Hegel, all those people we don't like to hear about, and then to Heidegger, and then from there they go to Athens and go all the way back to the pre-Socratic thinking and look at that through the lens of Nietzsche. So it's that kind of experiential work that they do in the summertime that allows them to grasp the, the actual concrete relationship between the history of ideas and visual representation. I should say that uh, as they're traveling around the world like that, they go to about 60 of the world's uh, preeminent museums. So in addition to the street life and the architecture and the music and the fashions and the living philosophers and artists that they work with are also studying the history of visual representation that way. In the fall and the spring they do live seminars by video conference. So there they are all spread around the world with faculty that are spread around the world. They come together and they study the you know regular syllabus of, of uh, seminar analysis. When, during those, uh, those live video conferences, by the way, not only do we have a, a philosopher or an artist teaching the course, but also we have people from around the world drop in by live video. So if we're reading a book by a philosopher who lives in, in London, she can drop in and say, well, we've got a few questions for you about how this text fits in, fits in with Derrida and blah, blah, blah. So it's pretty exciting. How many students do you have? We have about 75 students, which is very small for a school and very, very big for a humanities PhD program today. We have about 45 students in the three-year course of study and then another 30 or so out writing dissertations. What do you see the future of this institution being? Well, 
the future that I'm hoping for is an endowed institution that will live in perpetuity along the lines that it's, uh, it's uh, so far developed. It's been tremendously effective. When I was in graduate school, I don't know about you, but my primary job was to complain about how lousy the program were, was and how ineffectual the faculty was and how you know other faculty other schools were so much better. We get letters and emails and telephone calls from our students all the time saying, I can't thank you enough for this experience. And most of them are themselves professors. Maybe half to two-thirds of our students are faculty in uh, studio departments at American universities and colleges. So they're, they're educators themselves, and they so appreciate what we've come up with. And how about you in your own life? Couldn't be better. So no future thoughts? Uh, You're I happy have to, exactly where you are I right have now. to be bigger to feel any better. But again, if I had one, one big next dream come true, it would be to endow the institution. To me, that's the real key. Uh, we compete against some of the great institutions in the world who fund their students uh, completely and then give them usually some kind of a fellowship. And our students have to pay tuition because we're a small institution and we don't have the undergraduate tuition to depend on to, to fund. So that my next project, actually, now that we've got the school uh, accredited and really flying, is to, is to uh, focus on endowment. It's really interesting to me that you are literally building this from the ground up. And in Maine, we have this tremendous history of institutions doing exactly that. Because we've talked to the College of the Atlantic, we've talked to Unity College, and of course the other schools, which are now a couple hundred years old. Sure. But it seems like people don't necessarily feel held back by the fact that something educational doesn't currently exist. Does this... Does this in any way feel comforting to you as you're <laughs> moving through this process? Well, you know, I have to say that from the very beginning, I was convinced that what I'm doing could only happen in the state of Maine. Um, I am an academic, so I, I just know that you can't start a, a school. You, you, you can't start a program like this within an existing school. If you tried to do it at Harvard or even USM, it would take 10 years to just get through all the different committees. And then it would have to go to the provost for funding and then to the board of trustees. It would be 15 years and then eventually be shot down, I'm sure of it. Uh, and therefore, my first major decision in developing this program was to say it has to be a standalone. And people said, well, that means you're going to have to get a bill passed through the Maine state legislature and signed into law by the governor. Are you sure you want to do that? Much easier than going through it, the academic bureaucratic process. Much easier. In fact, it was a relative piece of cake. Uh, from the day that we decided to do this to the day we d delivered our first, first lecture at Spinocchio Castle in, in Tuscany was eight months. Eight months. We, we started with no money and no students. But I have to give a lot of credit to the state of Maine for that. Uh, it was an amazing process. We had to speak before the Education Committee of the state legislature. We had to speak before the, the, uh, the Board of Education. And these people were farmers and fishermen and gardeners and truck drivers and school teachers and we'd go and we said, oh my god they're not going to even want to talk to us and they were amazing amazing and then we had to speak before the uh the uh the committee on on education at the legislature and again what an amazing experience glenn cummings who is now the president of usm was the speaker of the house at the time he took this on as a personal uh, aspiration uh, got it through 
both houses and then before the governor with a, a unanimous minus one vote combined between the House and the Senate. Unanimous minus one. If I had tried to do this in Massachusetts where I'm from, we would not be, I would not be talking about it today. Well, given the amount of effort and energy you have put into this and given the amount of success you have had, I can only imagine that your next quest to get this to be fully endowed will be successful. So I hope people who are listening will um, find out more about the Institute for Doctoral Studies in the Visual Arts. I've been speaking with George Smith, who's an internationally recognized scholar and has long been a leader and innovator in American education and the founder of this wonderful school. I really appreciate your coming in and talking to me today. Thank you for your hospitality, Lisa. Really wonderful to talk with you. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com. It's my great pleasure today to speak with Cabot Lyman and Ruth Woodbury Starr. Cabot Lyman is the owner of Lyman Morris Boat Building. He moved to Maine and started the boat building company in 1978. In 2016, he opened 250 Maine Hotel, a boutique hotel in Rockland. Ruth Woodbury Starr, a Maine native, is general manager of the hotel. It's really great to have you both here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So 250 Maine is um, really a unique um, hotel for the state of Maine. When I think of, I think the Press Hotel and 250 Maine as being the only ones of their sort, I believe, in the state. Mm -hmm. I haven't stayed everywhere, obviously, but what was your inspiration for this? Well, the... uh yeah, <laughs> it, it, the idea was to have something that was going along with what was happening in Portland, which is getting more, I don't know, as I say, Brooklyn chic kind of uh, atmosphere and uh, I guess quite modern and what people are doing today and in uh, our own touches. So, uh, and we had the, uh, you know, we were building it from scratch, so we had the advantage of not trying to fix up an old building. So it was probably easier for us to do it than is than, than other places uh, so yeah I think it came out pretty well you know it was a, it was a combination of a architect and a interior designer and a, and a lot of us tweaking <laughs> so it, uh, it it worked pretty well so yeah there are there are a lot of interesting touches I think the um, the iPads that are replacing all of mm -hmm. the um, all the papers that normally one gets in the hotel and the lounge downstairs that offers some breakfast but also has drinks later in the day and the artwork. I mean, the artwork is really great. It's, it's all curated. Is that right, Ruth? It is. It's a cooperative of uh, most of the galleries right in our Midcoast area, mostly in Rockland. And all of the art is for sale, you know, through the gallerist and um, 
go proceeds going to the artist so it's a way to support that part of our community and it changes out quarterly so it's like sort of like a gallery itself there's also enough space the way that the ceilings are done between floors and with the big fireplace that there are very big pieces and very unique pieces too it's not your it's not your average hotel art that was part of the design and and part of the uh, real thing was to have real art uh, rather than the prints that you see in most hotels so we really and that this works out really well for everybody so <clears throat> yeah it's fun it's fun to have all that. what's been fun for me is that uh, we've got a lot of uh, uh, children of uh, of good friends of mine that are actually exhibiting in the hotel which I absolutely love so it's great so it really couldn't be in a better location either I mean Rockland has some places to stay but this is right on Main Street but not and close but it's not in the middle so that you can't get through with your car yeah. and you've got great views of the waterfront mm -hmm. and the sunrise I mean the deck is wonderful the top floors are so expansive but really there isn't a bad view from any room no you're right it worked out really well so it was a hard lot because of the way it's angled but it, the angle ended up turning out to be a really a, a real plus so it's great so, yeah, and that's why my sons got me into this. So they saw the lot for sale, and that's <laughs> so that's what we went for. <laughs> it seems as though um, someone who has spent more time doing boat building stuff, moving into a hotel, um, that might have been a kind of a interesting experience. Yeah, I think the comment is uh, maybe I should just shoot me, <laughs> but, but not really. <laughs> it's the hotels worked out great, but it was a bit of a uh, uh, a slow time for the boat building industry, and uh, so we started to wander towards a little bit how to keep our guys busy and a little diversification and um, and a little investment in the future. So that's that's we we got we did it, but it's worked out great. We're really. I'm really pleased with the building, so it's it's great, and we got Migus running it, and uh, they've done a great job, and that's what a lot of like the iPads and so forth that comes from the Migus touch. So, and uh, and Migus, of course, is the outfit that's running it, who Ruth works with. So. But we still work very closely with the Lyman Morris, and for example, my facilities director is straight from the boatyard. He can fix anything, build anything. He can 3D print a soap dish or a shower pan. So we're never um, in disrepair, that's for sure. Handy guys over from the boatyard. <laughs> yeah, that, it's actually, that's really cool, the idea that you can do 3D printing and come up with something that's very useful. Yeah, give them a hammer and a piece of wood, and we, it's a, always going to be a beautiful property. Migus has, um, is doing some interesting things. I, I know that I interviewed... Um, I, he was a youngish gentleman. You interviewed Ted Porta, I believe. Yes, um, mm -hmm. for a little TV segment. Mm -hmm. And I was really intrigued to hear that, um, not unlike what's going on um, in Cabot's family, that there's a lot of family back and forth. There's a lot of interaction. There's a lot of wanting to maintain um, the sense of family and community, but also looking toward the future. That's right. Yeah, it feels really good for me to be working for two family companies and main family companies so it means a lot both of them I think have a little bit of throwback but a lot of innovation and that's what happens when you move down generations too so it's a great combination and it 
it's great to know you're working for good people. Where did you grow up, Ruth? I grew up up north um, at Millinocket. I had a paper uh, business family, and um, I've been all over the state. I also grew up with a, a trawler right in Rockland Harbor, a boat um, I grew up on. So a uh, family in Rockland and uh, high school there. So um, every time I look out my office window, I sort of think about you know, coming full circle and really sharing. I'm from all over the state and sharing that with my visitors. Yeah, it sounds like you have kind of the love of the inside part of the state mm -hmm. and also the love of the coast. Absolutely. Which I know, Cabot, you and I were talking about your Vermont connection. So you have the same kind of thing, although it's love of inside of New England, I guess. So you're a coastal guy, but you also love going back to the mountains. Oh, I love, yeah, both very much so. But, uh, yeah, we came here because of the coast, and uh, we came here because of boats. And uh, Heidi and I spent a lot of time <coughs> after college. We were running charter boats and sailing around in the Mediterranean for quite a while, back in our what I would call our hippie days. And uh, and that really pushed us right into Maine, back to Maine. So, And I grew up coming up the coast up here and uh, being on boats and working on boats. Well, it was all about me. <laughs> so was it important when you were looking at the lot for the hotel that it be looking out on essentially a working waterfront? It, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't have bought it otherwise. That was That's a really nice lot for Rockland, Maine, and Rockland's on a roll, and so it worked out really well to have that lot come up. And uh, we were already starting to look about what the future brings and that lot came so we we jumped on that yeah very quickly so it is an exceptional lot for Rockland yeah it, uh, that park in front will always be open so so it works out great yeah. now you told me before we came on the air that um, you didn't you wanted there to be kind of marine and nautical touches but you didn't want it to be your standard hotel that you know with anchors and Mm. anchors on the pillows and right you didn't say that but well I mean, my, my wife was very <laughs> Heidi was very uh, <laughs> adamant about that that we weren't going to do that so <laughs> and uh, and yeah so I think we've got enough marine in there but not overwhelming so yeah. Ruth what are some of your favorite uh, I guess marine inspired touches within 250 Maine I think there's just generally a lot of nods to Maine industry um, the fabrication, the I-beams, um, even reminds me of Bath Ironworks and the boatyard. Um, so uh, I love that there's Kevlar sail rope um, running the banisters and r wrapping our rooftop deck. The rooftop deck sort of comes to a point, sort of shaped like the bow of a boat, so you can king of the world it up there on the top <laughs> corner um, so it's very subtle and you ha really have to look for it but um, you know the wood the shiplap all referencing I think our state's past in industry I noticed when I was going up the stairs that you've painted quotes in the stairwells oh, yeah and, and that you've made sure that the stairwells also are nice enough so people would like to take the stairs which is unusual I take a lot of stairs and a lot of places don't it's it's sort of a, an afterthought like if there's a fire you could take the stairs but otherwise that's not what we expect right. you to do right. so where did that come from that was my deal <laughs> I, uh, I've seen that in other places and it's just really neat when you're walking up the stairs to see something to, as you say make it fun to go up those stairs and 
and I have a feeling that uh, future generations are going to use stairs more than the elevator just because we're all realizing what we need to do. <laughs> so, um, that's, anyway, uh, I often use stairs and not elevators in a building. So. Well, so now people who are going to Rockland, they're going to have to specifically go in. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I want them to do. Yes, yeah. see go the see quotes. It. We won't spoil it. Uh, that's right. I'm and, not gonna and I notice kids like to run up and down the stairs, so that's good. <laughs> it's very good for the parents who are trying to get some sleep. <laughs> exactly. That's for sure. Um, Ruth, you have a background in uh, wellness. You actually worked at Soma Wellness. I saw you interviewed Julie Wright. Exactly. Yeah, I think there's a lot of crossover um, in what I do now and have always done with what I did for Julie. Uh, wellness is important to me personally, um, but I think there is a real intimacy and tenderness um, in taking care of people uh, overnight and in those vulnerable hours, um, especially when they're far from home. Um, and I just think a general uh you know, aspect of why people travel is that escape to get away, you, you know. Um, so I want to provide that safe safety and security is another thing we do in our business kind of dry, but um, overall just really taking care of people and providing a safe space for whatever they need. That's wellness. <laughs> I've noticed that hospitality in Maine, I mean, we've always had a strong sense of hospitality because we've been wel welcoming people from other places for a long time. But it seems as if it's um, even even more upping its game. It seems like we are really trying to compete with some of the bigger markets. Um, and and I, at the same time, I know that sometimes getting um, enough people to work in the hospitality field can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. What has that been like up in the Rockland area? I'm very proud to say that um, we are providing close to a dozen year-round positions and the winter has proved um, really good um, to get us all through. Um, there is a big difference between Portland where I lived for years um, and the mid-coast area in terms of seasonality. It can be kind of tough to make it through the winter, um, but I think um, we're providing something that's fun and educational and I I would like my professional legacy to be sort of providing an educational setting I think the hospitality industry is a great uh, place for people such as some young people in our area who may not have access to higher education to still advance in a field where if you're willing to do and learn um, you can really get ahead in the hotel business and I'm trying to provide a working environment where I can teach them everything I know. So once I've got a good person, I try to keep them <laughs> and trying to provide, you know, not just a job, but maybe potential careers for people. Well, and I know that that's, um, that's really important. We actually have one of our sales um, uh, account managers is was in hospitality I think for uh, at least a couple decades and the skills that she learned that she brought into our organization were really quite wonderful mm -hmm. you know it's the be ability to be organized and work with people and understand how to make people feel good and welcome and cared for mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Cabot I'm wondering because you've been doing boat building 
for quite a long time. Um, you started Lyman Morse boat building in Thomaston. Um, you moved after you moved here in 1978. That's that's a few decades. You're few a few decades, decades in. <laughs> so you've probably seen some things, and your business has grown a lot. Yeah. What are some of the things that you've learned through this process? Whoa, <laughs> a lot. But, uh, you know, I, I enjoy being an employer with skilled people. We've got great crews. Um, and we've certainly seen a huge growth in our area. Uh, it was, it was, it's really changed from 40 years ago. Uh, uh, Thomas and Rockland, Camden. And uh, <clears throat> so it's a great place to live, bring up kids. And, uh, and it's, yeah, it's been a good run. Uh, uh, as things about what we've learned is, whoa, <laughs> a lot, <laughs> you know, especially in the boating industry. So, and now I've learned a lot about the hotel industry that I had no idea existed. So, <laughs> I'm learning that every day. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, if you've done one thing for so long, yeah. and then say your son convinces you that we should go, you know, take a right turn. Mm -hmm. Were you able to adapt to that idea easily, or? Oh yeah, yeah. I'd be easy. I'd be easy to do that. So, uh, and uh, yeah, three sons are pretty involved with me, and uh, we all decided as a group. But I also have a theory that uh, you know uh, every business has a run for about thirty years, and then you've got to get some new blood. And uh, so I'm pretty much retired from both. My son is putting a really good crew together and doing really well. It was a long six, seven years here with a downturn for all boat businesses, not just us. And uh, so we've come out of it a bit now. So we're a lot, a lot busier and things are good and the mid-coast area is growing. So all of it, hopefully that will last, you know, keep on going. So, If you grew up um, originally from the Millinocket area, Ruth, you've also seen significant changes to mm -hmm. your hometown region. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think this is kind of emblematic of Maine. Maine always has kind of a back and forth and we are one thing and then something changes and mm -hmm. then we're something different and we've, we're constantly having to remake ourselves. Mm -hmm. Have you had the sense that things are on the upturn for Millinocket? Ooh, that's one that everyone has been following, and I guess it remains to be seen, but I think there's some positive things happening, um, and uh, I think the Millinocket will always keep some integrity as well, so I'm interested to see, I mean, what it was when I grew up, it certainly no longer exists, um, but yeah, I'd love to see um, the locals benefit from everything that's happening there. Yeah, the new monument up there is pretty interesting. Where uh, I wasn't part of the conversation, but I heard about the conversation with some of the wardens. So the, uh, they're all buying houses in Millinocket now. There's people coming in, and yeah, it's a. And as we know, every national park uh, has great economy around it. So let's hope. Let's hope, huh? Yeah, Lucas St. Clair, is, uh, he's an impressive individual. He's mm. very thoughtful. He's one of our main live speakers, and he's been in the magazine. I've interviewed him. And one of the things that I've been impressed with is his ability to keep pushing forward despite um, naysayers, mm -hmm. which isn't always easy to do. Mm -hmm. We know, Cabot knows a bit about that. 
<laughs> yeah. Licensing and permits and building this. Well, yeah, this, yeah. I want to hear some of this dirt then, Cavett, if this is well, something that you have well, some we experience with. Well, we ran into some opposition because they didn't like the idea of, uh, of a new building like this. And, uh, but I, we were, Scott Tease and I were uh, fairly adamant that uh, uh, you can't copy old buildings, so you don't want to. And, and, and historical societies around the country are very much behind this now because they don't want you to go in and try to duplicate an old building because you can't do it and it doesn't work. So we wanted a distinctly kind of a, a neat building that was standing on its own, be a good for that south end of Rockland. And uh, I think we nailed it really well. And, and of course, um, there was a lot of naysayers in the beginning because they want to keep everything as the way they moved in. But uh, the people in Rockland that have been there forever uh, have been totally supportive. It's been great. So it's, uh, it's been an interesting, uh, I had no idea I was going to run into that. Zero, because social media is out of my realm, and uh, and and they use social media without any kind of uh, real uh, input. In other words, uh, they're not involved. You can you can do so things on social media, make a big splash, but you're not really in, in involved in the process. And uh, so that was a big surprise to me. We learned a lot. <laughs> the moral of the story is change happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, is it possible to hold both things, to have the, maintain the integrity of a community, maintain mm -hmm. support of the people who have lived there for right. maybe generations, right. but also bring something in that is new that might benefit um, the economy and these families? Mm -hmm. Is it possible to do both? Absolutely. I think we did that. Oh, I think we've got a good building and it looks good and uh, it does and it's going to be there for a long time and it's well built so uh, it fits right in on Main Street uh, in terms of, uh, you know, it's the first building in 100 plus years that's been building on, built on Main Street and uh, it's actually quite a bit, it's longer than that actually. So there was a fire in Rockland in 1952 and some really nice old buildings got burned. And they never got replaced because that was the advent of the, the whole car was moving in. So the, everybody moved out. They didn't rebuild anything in Rockland. So we're the first ones to really go ahead and build a new building that, and some of the old buildings that burned were just fantastic. So, but you can't replace that. You've got to start something new. And, and I think Rockland is on such a roll that it's time to present a little newer face. And uh, uh, some people didn't like that, but uh, generally everybody is all quieted down and everybody's quite happy. On that note, does it seem as if um, there's some interesting energy going on? I know that Dowling Walsh and um, there's several other galleries in the area, they've been there for a while now. The, uh, obviously you have the Farnsworth on Main Street. Now you have the um, Contemporary Art Museum that has just reopened yeah, in the middle great, of Rockland, yeah. which is very modern looking. Very modern, yeah. Which obviously yeah. it's contemporary art. Yeah. And there's actually kind of some interesting synergy between the design of your building and of the CMCA. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. again, it's the question and of... And it was unplanned. <laughs> but does it seem as if, you know, if you bring something over here then, and you open up that possibility that it makes it possible for other people to entertain growth and change and building? Oh, uh, absolutely. I think it's important. Uh, and we're starting to see, uh, the CMCA was a good example of how they came in on their own and uh, uh, unbeknownst to us, but it works really well with our building. It works really well for Auckland. It's, it's great. 
that you know rocks have become a gallery in a foodie town so there's a, quite a lot to do for people that are interested in that the strand theater has this terrific venues and uh, people are traveling up from portland to see what's going on musicians are coming up there to be part of the whole musical thing in the strand and and of course i like the movies they show so uh, it's great yeah so the rockland's changed a lot farnsworth museum is uh, you know, kind of Wyeth oriented, but a lot of really good stuff in there. So, and uh, so, yeah, it's a change town. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll be part of it. <laughs> hopefully we're helping to push it along. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Great minds think alike. <laughs> well, I was just wondering, Ruth, as someone who's um, on the lower end of the age range, um, What's it like to be back in Rockland right. after living in Portland and mm -hmm. other parts of the world? It's great. We've got lots going on. Um, um, I, my husband and family are in the art uh, fields working at galleries and at the Farnsworth. We've got um, the Bash celebration this weekend, which is sort of the young person innovative art party going on and they had like a pre-party last Thursday with um, a sumo theme it's, it's origami theme this year so it's all the young um, people lots and lots to do even in March so um, if we can do this in March and having the thriving hotel and we're doing events in the lobby uh, I think there's a great um, opportunity in Rockland for younger people yeah we, we had no idea what was going on in Rockland when we opened the hotel. It's unbelievable how many things jump out at us. Yeah. And from the Fisherman's Forum, forum to some, uh, you know, some of the food things are going on. And, you know, all of a sudden <laughs> we're really busy and it's really neat stuff. So mm -hmm. everybody's having fun. <laughs> you also, in the fall, um, Camden, Rockport, Rockland, and you pull in people from all over the world with the Camden International Film Festival. Uh, uh, mm. All that stuff that's going on in Camden and helps feed us too, yeah. And uh, they fill up up there and uh, uh, and also some people like being in Rockland better, so mm -hmm. yeah. I'm, I'm in both towns, pre pretty heavily invested in all three towns, so doesn't matter to me. <laughs> you know, let's bring them all in. <laughs> let's keep all three towns going. The Rock Coast. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, people think of Maine and they have a very specific idea of what Maine is like, depending upon where they've traveled. But I think that your part of the coast is is quite unique compared to some of the other. You know, mm -hmm. Mount Desert Island is its own thing. Down here in Portland, we're our own thing. But your area, I mean, with the, the yeah. jetty and Owl's Head just up the road, I mean, there's some really different things that people can experience in your part of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, Portland is the driving agent for all of us and, uh, and and things are going well down here and that kind of helps push but the idea is Portland's become a very modern uh, kind of cool town uh, and that's pushing that whole coastal Maine and so we're feeding off that a bit so it's great yeah what we offer is very different though so still an escape still a getaway oh yeah definitely an escape from uh, you know so we've got we've got a lot of Portland people coming up or anniversaries, birthdays, whatever. So, uh, it's a nice, nice turn from Portland. So. I was, it was really interesting to me because the magazine does a Sankaset event, you know, five to seven, um, once a month in different parts of Maine. And we did ours up in Camden 
a couple weeks ago, and it was packed. Yeah. We happen to be at the Camden Harbor Inn. I'm sure at some point we will ask yeah. if you great. would like to work with us <laughs> at 250 would. Main because I think it would be a great Sanka set in Rockland. Definitely. But the Midcoast region, I mean, there were people like overflowing the porch and out into the parking mm-hmm. lot, and this was March. Mm-hmm. So there's still a lot that's going on in Maine, even not during, you know, lobster season. We're a year-round community now, which didn't used 40 years ago. That just wasn't happening, and uh, and we've reached uh, as a friend of mine who has since died, but he was saying uh, we're a little like Santa Fe in some some ways, where we reached a critical mass. So it's a full year-round community now. We're instead of just a vacation place. So it's very much changed that way. So it's. Uh, there's just something happening every weekend up there. It's really busy. I'm just amazed. <laughs> so there, we used to be pretty quiet for the whole winter up there. <laughs> so yeah, I find when I go up there, and when I stayed at 250 Maine, I just could not eat at all the restaurants I wanted to eat at. Mm-hmm. I couldn't visit all the places I wanted to visit. And this is, you know, this is the Rock Coast. So right. you'd think that it would be small enough and manageable enough that mm-hmm. that would be possible. Yeah. But there's there is there's a lot yeah. going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you see happening, Ruth, um, with 250 Main? You, you've uh, been open since 2016, so mm-hmm. not yeah. quite a year. I haven't been hoping a year, yeah. Um, what are you hoping, as the manager, what are you hoping to see happen with the hotel? Well, there's a lot going on um, in Maine tourism this year. I was just at the Governor's Conference on Tourism last week. Um, so certainly to stay abreast of all that and stay pragmatic, but also, um, you know, the second season sort of more put down some roots um, and find that, you know, sort of rooted pattern, especially with the seasons being so strong. Um, But I hope that, you know, as we do put down roots, that we still maintain our cutting edge. I think that's our edge is a big thing. Um, Cabot's a little bit of a visionary and a maverick, and I want to stay true to that no matter what. And I always want to stay true to Rockland. Well, I appreciate you're both coming in and talking with me today, and I really do love the work that you've done. I mean, to stay there was such a treat. I'm hoping that we'll be back again um, soon. I've been speaking with Cabot Lyman, who is the owner of Lyman Morse Boat Building, who moved to Maine and started the boat building company in 1978, and then in 2016 opened 250 Maine, a boutique hotel in Rockland, and also with Ruth Woodbury Starr, a Maine native, who is the general manager of the hotel. Thanks so much for coming in and for all the good work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You've been listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 293, Designing a New. Our guests have included Dr. George Smith, Cabot Lyman, and Ruth Woodbury Starr. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our Love Maine Radio photos on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Designing a New Show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. 
Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasson. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belay. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.